0: Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies, this is Pardes from Jerusalem. I'm Larry Kluger of Pardes Alam. This week, Vajlach. This week Tovalea Nahami discusses Vaishlak. Tovalea Nahami is a member of the Pardes faculty. And now Tovaleya Nachmani. Thirty-four years ago, Yitzhak and Rivka, Isaac and Rebecca had a terrible choice to make. A very, very difficult choice. They had to choose which of their children was going to continue the ethical monotheistic revolution that they had continued as a second generation. It's not easy to continue a, a revolution and to not strive and desire to to move out on our own and to create our own lives in a very independent and individuated way. This was a really intense decision that was going to have to be made about who was the most suited, the best suited, in order to continue this revolution. Esau, Esau, was a man of the field, he was a practical man. He was someone who knew the ways of the world. Unlike Yitzchak, who was a very gentle person, a person who never left the land of Israel, who didn't encounter uh, very much strife in his life, a person who, I should say, when he did encounter strife, he he walked away from strife as much as he could. I think it was Yitzchak who really wanted to choose Esav, because Esav had something that Yitzchak was lacking. And Rebecca, Rivka, who came from Lavan, from Charan, from a, the home of someone who knew how to manipulate the world, and who lived very much in, inside of the material world, and and, and thought all about how to um, how to overcome other people and how to get what they want out of life. I think Rivka, Rebecca, knew that in the short term, being able to overcome people and using our strength and using our power. In the short term, that's the way to get things done. That's the way that things happen. That things that we can bring closure to situations. But in the long term, but in the long term, the way we bring closure to a situation, or the way we grow, the way we continue our relationships, is through communication. Is through the word. She knew that Yaakov had what it took, and not Esav, in order to lead the world, to bring leadership to the world, in order to bring the light of monotheism of ethical living into the world that was at that time pagan and cruel and quite ruthless. 34 years ago, that was a choice Rivka and Yitzchak had to make. And 34 years ago, Rivka beckoned quietly and secretly, she beckoned Yaakov into her kitchen, let's say, and she convinced him to make food for his father who was blind and to dress him up, in hairy goat skins in order to try to pass as Esav. And that's what Yaakov did. And we know the end of that story, that Esav, when he found out that Yitzchak had given him the blessing that Esav assumed was set up for him, was was preserved for him, was set aside for him, Esav hated Yaakov and wanted to kill him. So Yaakov runs away, and he goes to live in Haran, and 34 years later, now in our tour portion, Yaakov is summoned to return, to return to the land of Israel. So here are the questions I want to pose. The first question is, when Yaakov returns, why does he send messengers to Seir, to the place where Esau is living? As Ramban says, why wake a sleeping watchdog? Meaning if... He knew Esav wanted to kill him. Why didn't he just avoid any contact with Esav to begin with? Why didn't he just come back to the land and settle someplace else, where maybe Esav never would have known that he even came back? Something in Yaakov clearly was looking for reconciliation. Clearly, he was looking for, even at the risk of danger, he was looking for some kind of um, some kind of dialogue that would happen between him and his brother. And what is Yaakov's internal dialogue as he faces the inevitable reunion with his brother who wanted to kill him? Yaakov is stricken with fear. We see that Yaakov does three things. He sends um, gifts to his brother. He sends words of appeasement to a- to Esab who's coming with 400 men, military men. Yaakov is, is terrified. Um, and we see also that Yaakov offers a prayer. The fascinating thing about Yaakov's prayer is one of my favorite Lines in the Torah, one of my favorite verses, um, and one of my favorite songs that in modern Israeli uh, um, that in modern Israeli music uh, has a beautiful melody to it, um, which is Katonti Mikol When Yaakov finally returns to the land of Israel, he doesn't return with a feeling of entitlement. He returns with a feeling of Katonti. I'm small. I'm unworthy. I don't know what I'm deserving of. And I'm not coming to the land in order to make demands. I'm coming to the land in order to be a servant of God and a servant of this community and a servant of society in a way that I want to I want to bring society forward. I want to be able to help people to grow and to live a better life. And so he comes with this humility, which I think is what enables him also to encounter a sav and to survive this encounter. And we see that when he's about to encounter Esav, the scene in the Torah changes, chapters 32 and 33 in Bereshit in Genesis, and we see that it's nighttime. hahu, We see that it becomes nighttime. And Yaakov reveals to us what his internal dialogue is. He says by sending all of these gifts of flocks and, um, and wealth to his brother Esav, he says out loud, to his messengers. He says, tell Esav that I'm coming to appease you. I'm coming to appease you because, he says, I will appease his face. I will appease his face. Echparav <laughs> fanav. After that, I will see his face. Acharechan er'ei fanav. Ulai fanai. Perhaps he will lift up or forgive my face. And it's clear that the word face, panav, <laughs> panim, is the same word as Pnim, internal, because our face really only reflects what it is that we're feeling inside. And so it's clear to us that what Yaakov is looking for is some kind of reconciliation, and that's the internal struggle in the heart of Yaakov. But how can he reconcile what he did with Esav? How can he reconcile the failures of his own and the failures of Esav? Esav's failures, which were not valuing the birthright, the responsibility to continue the social revolution that his parents and grandparents founded and lived by and risked their lives for. Esau was willing to sell that birthright for a pot of soup. We might say Esau, we could see in a national sense that Asab didn't have what it took to be able to lead a nation forward. Esau was a man of power. And we see also, if we think about it from an in from an in Individual perspective that within each of us we have a sense of Esau. We have a sense of our physical needs, wanting to be able to fulfill our physical needs and desires, at the expense very often of longer term goals, of more spiritual goals. We see that Esau's failure also was that he was he was unable to admit and to recognize that Yaakov really was more deserving than he was of receiving this blessing. The goat skins. The deception that Yaakov agreed to when he agreed, when, when when he received the blessing of his father infuriated Esav, and rightly so. But at the same time, Esav's failure was that he wasn't able to see that Yaakov was really the one who was going to be able to carry on the ethical monotheistic revolution. Ultimately, it was when Yaakov was fleeing from Esav's <clears throat> hatred, and vengeance, and and his desire, and his and his desire to kill, um, to kill his brother, under the guise of finding a wife. Yaakov said, "I got to go find a wife. I mean, I'm going to go away. I'm going to go far away." And then Yitzchak gave him the blessing. He gave him actually a different blessing. He gave him the ultimate blessing, the blessing of Abraham, the blessing that God gave to Abraham, which was the blessing of seed and land, of inheriting the land, of taking the responsibility of using. A nation, of leading a nation, and bringing a nation to a place of having a very, very um, important and revolutionary impact in an ethical monotheistic framework. What was Yaakov's failure? Yaakov's failure was the distance that he created between him and his family. He cut himself off from his family for 34 years. He had no communication with his father, no communication with his mother, no communication with his brother. He didn't reach out to anyone to acknowledge the pain, to acknowledge the hurtfulness, Jacob had his own backpack filled with his sense of shame or his sense of, of despair when it came to his own failures. And what I want to think about is what does it mean to fail? What does it mean to face our failures? There's an article in the New York Times, a education section called Facing Failures and Breeding Success by Richard, Richard Barth, co-authored by about six of his colleagues. And he writes the following, he says, encountering and learning from failure in the field of education and also psychology, we need to be allowed to engage our critical thinking skills when we experience failures. But this is not necessarily effective. Because when we receive grades and we get feedback in school through tests and report cards or even work evaluations, sometimes that can distance ourselves from ourselves. The real long-term effectiveness of feedback from other people is only when we have individualized that feedback and personalized it for ourselves. At the West Point Military Academy, the AAR, After Action Review, is used to provide feedback to soldiers following missions. There's questions in that AAR that include, what was supposed to happen? What actually happened? What could I have done better and what did I do well? That kind of effective and retrospective evaluation is what really facilitates growth from failures. And it enables, it enables us to meet the demands of a complex and dynamic world where we must be able to face our own failures and ultimately grow from them. The interesting thing at the end of this section, in the struggle between Yaakov and his own conscience, Yaakov and the man that wrestled with him and perhaps wrestled within him until dawn was that the struggle was so intense that there is a jumble of voices in that section where we can't even really tell who's struggling with who. And we have to go through those those um, verses very, very slowly in order to see that who is it that's asking to be blessed? The man says to Yaakov, in the middle of that struggle, he says, send me away because dawn has risen. Dawn is clarity. Dawn is when it becomes obvious to everyone where we need to go from here. And Yaakov says, I will not send you away until you bless me. Rashi says that blessing that Yaakov was seeking was approval, was confirmation and acceptance for having taken that blessing that he believed was rightfully his, and his mother believed was rightfully his, but that entailed deceiving his father, taking that blessing, and going through with that plan, which he never felt comfortable with. The man says to Yaakov, your name will no longer be Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men, and you have been able to endure the struggle, Tuchal. Struggling with God is struggling with that aspect of internal judgment with our conscience with a sense of guilt or remorse that we have often when we have failed in some way. And the interesting thing at the very end of this section, the fascinating thing is that Yaakov calls the name of that place Piniel, the face of God. Because as he says, I have seen Elohim, which may be this aspect of internal judgment, face to face, and I have been saved. What does it mean that he's been saved? The sun rose for him, And when he passed this place, called Face of God, he was limping, because what had the angel or the man done to him? He had struck him in the thigh. And it says in the Torah, therefore the children of Israel are not to eat this tendon, which is on the thigh, in animals to this day, because this is where the man touched, struck, and harmed Yaakov's thigh, in the place of this tendon a funny combination of three icons in the Chinese language for Judaism. There's three icons. You'll see them on the source sheet. The name in Chinese for Judaism is the religion that removes the tendon. The religion that removes the tendon. Removing the tendon is symbolic. There's something about this mitzvah where this entire struggle is boiled down to this one mitzvah that most of us never even really encounter because it's only the people who who ritually slaughter the animals that would even encounter this. But what's the purpose of having this mitzvah? It's the third chronological mitzvah in the Torah. Sefer the book of education, says, "What's the? What is this? What is this mitzvah? What's the?" Symbolism. What are we supposed to be remembering by this mitzvah? And what you said is what we're remembering is that in all generations, the Jewish people will suffer because of their chosenness. They will suffer from other people and they need to be certain that they will always endure, that they will never be lost. Always they will endure and, and their name is Israel, the one who's willing to struggle, the one who's willing to live with struggle will be an eternal value that we will have. Sometimes we look to end struggle or end conflict in our life, but I think what Yaakov is teaching us is that we need to be able to live with our struggles, to be able to live with our failures, and not to judge and blame other people for their failures, but to really take a good look at our own failures and ask ourselves, what was supposed to happen? What actually happened? What could I have done better? And what did I do well? Failure is not the end of a road. Failure is inevitable. Every failure we survive is a learning experience. Even if I lose my relationship, even if I lose my job, whatever happens to me, it's a learning experience. It's a crossroad. Failure makes success taste even sweeter, more than if success had been come easily to me at very first try. And not only that, but failure is part of life. So the next time I fail, which is inevitable, I will have experienced overcoming failure. So I will be even better at doing that. Ultimately, I think Yaakov is teaching us that to face our failures, to be able to look our failures in the face and to struggle with them, and to know that that struggle is part of our life and that we can do it. That we can overcome, which doesn't mean we'll be victorious, but it means we'll be able to be, to, to continue to live with our failures and to grow from them ultimately. I bless us that we are all able to ask ourselves these very important and deep questions and that we're able to take our failures with pride on our back, with humility, with the humility of feeling that we're not entitled, but in fact we're growing and we're trying to become more and more worthy of the responsibilities that we have as individuals and also as a nation. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, Tovalaya. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode of Paradise from Jerusalem.